emotions for that. And uh, in fact, tonight begins the first day of the fifth month. At <clears throat> a new moon tonight. So, we're progressing through God's year. We'll see where things go. Well, we went into Romans 1 last week, and uh, I think it really is timely. Uh, it talks here about us understanding God through the things that He has made that are natural, that are beautiful, that the things that He has done that help us understand that there is a God, that all these things could not be here unless they were designed and brought forth by a very, very detailed and great mind, along with great power to create and to cause things to happen. Uh, I spent quite a little time on uh, showing that he was writing to the Romans, who were essentially a Gentile church, uh, but they're were more than likely, as we'll see here soon, some Jews among them, because wherever their con the churches were being established, there were uh, Jews living in the area, and probably there were some Jewish converts among the Gentiles. And I spent quite a little time showing how Paul was approaching this from the standpoint of do we have race feelings here? Do we have problems here? And trying to sort of delicately go through it and show that God is accepting of all. Now, you might say, why is that important for us now? Why does that need to be in Romans? And why did you emphasize the tact and diplomacy that Paul was using to discuss that to us? I mean, we're sitting here and we're not feeling racism, are we? No. And yet, in my experience in the greater church of God, uh, while we taught that race issues and sensitivities and so on should be repented of and go away, there was still a lot of it that went on. And I've experienced it all my life, and even here in this congregation, there have been racial sensitivities in the last 15 years or so. So, it's not something that has gone away, but the main point I want to make here is that it is going to increase dramatically and soon. God is going to gather people from the north, south, east, and west, not of the United States only, but of the world. So, we are soon going to have many, many different races here with many, many different languages many of whom will not speak English, more than likely. So, how do we amalgamate this? God says there in Haggai, I will bring peace in this place. Now, when you throw that many races together, uh, you have a recipe for all kinds of problems. And in fact, I suspect, very strongly, that we'll need the gift of tongues. Uh, as it came in Pentecost in Acts 2. Because when you have a lot of people coming from all over the world, they may not speak English, or they may speak broken English, and may be very, very hard to understand, if at all. So God may have to give us the gift of tongues that we might amalgamate and understand one another. You know, He created the confusion among 
the races by befuddling the languages back at the Tower of Babel. So God caused this to happen because of the intransigence and sin of man and their desire to take over and rule under Satan the whole world. And it didn't fit with his plan at the time. So he divided them up by causing different languages. And they didn't stay together and try to work it out, did they? No, they split. We can't handle this. And now you're about to be subjected to the exact same thing. Not that God will cause them to speak different languages at this time, but from the Tower of Babel on since, they already have been doing so. So now he's going to bring together people who have difficulty understanding each other. There are many people in South America who speak very little English who are in the church. And we have ministers and elders, or did, down there who do speak English, I mean Spanish, quite fluently, and elders of their own people. <coughs> so it works. But there are places where you still have to have an interpreter in order for people to even understand what's being said. When I was in Kenya, it wasn't that way in South Africa because virtually everybody spoke English. Uh, albeit a little difficult, but for the most part spoke pretty decent English. In Kenya, no. Very few did. So I had to have an interpreter at all times for people to understand what I was saying. And as I look back, I'm not sure the interpreter was saying exactly what I was saying. I don't know. How would I know? Because <laughs> I don't speak the language down there. So... I think that this is very timely that we go through this and see because of what is anticipated, because of what the Scriptures say is going to happen very soon. And he says that we need to keep our eyes on the Creator, not the created. And something else that's very timely here is this section right after that about how vile affections would abound. Now, it isn't the first time in history that this has occurred. Why did God make laws against bestiality and uh, pedophilia and all those things in the Old Testament? Because they were all things that had been done in the past, I'm sure, greatly before the flood and even after, and Israel had to be warned about it. Now, on the heels of me going through that last week, I just read an article uh, that reminded that only very recently had the Supreme Court handed down a decision that now in all 50 states, LGBT people are allowed to marry. For those who don't understand that acronym, it's lesbians, gays, uh, bisexuals, and transgenders are able to marry. That's legal now throughout the United States. And what an abomination. Now, a Texas congressman said today, or yesterday, whenever he said it, but I just I read it today, that the Department of Justice of the United States of America now wants to add 12 more perversions that are legal. And he concentrated on bestiality and pedophilia as two of them that they are projecting will become legal. No age of consent anymore. Anybody's fair game. 
Now, this is already happening. France just passed a law that there is no age of consent in France anymore. Anybody's fair game. Uh, before you rape a kid, their law states that you have to explain to them what you're doing. They have to understand what is about to happen to them. So, doesn't matter what age they are, as long as you explain to them what's about to happen, that makes it legal. We are sick as Israelites and as Ephraimites in this nation. Our leaders are sick from the head to the foot, and our society is what's pushing this. <clears throat> now they're planning on more demonstrations tomorrow across the country. I don't know how big they'll get, but at least they've been announcing that they're supposed to have these uh, Antifa things again against the so-called patriots. And one of them scheduled for tomorrow evening early, I think 5.30 or so in Washington, D.C., so we'll see where it goes. But everything that we've gone through so far in chapter 1 of Romans is very, very much current news today. And we're having to deal with it. <clears throat> what if they pass that and you send your kids to school? What if your third, fourth, fifth, six-year-old boys and girls get raped by their teachers and security guards and janitors and whoever wanders into the schoolyard. And it's legal. How are you going to send your kids to school? I wouldn't send mine. <laughs> totally sick. All right, then he goes on down at the end of that chapter <clears throat> and mentions all kinds of crimes and sins that our society is filled with today by people of reprobate, ungodly minds. And you can see them there right in front of you, verses 29 through 32, <coughs> about all that is going on. So I'll not review that, but let's go on from there into chapter 2. Because he mentions all of these horrible, wretched sins that are occurring, and he says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whosoever you are that judges or condemns someone else. And he's going to go on to show that it's the pot calling the kettle black. We have to be very, very careful uh, in putting others down. Well, we see it all over our society, and he's going to make it very clear that we need to be different from the society around us. Uh, otherwise, we're inexcusable. So he says, if you're like these people that we've just talked about in this nation, and they're everywhere now. This is going on everywhere. We're inexcusable if we condemn others. For where, wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you, the judge, do the same things. It's pervasive. It's all through society. You know, we can condemn this congressman or that president or whoever is in leadership, the mayor or whatever, for having an affair, for lying, for embezzling, for cheating, and on and on and on. And they make the headlines, and people say, oh, they shouldn't be doing that. They're our leaders. Well, till they became leaders, they were one of us. 
And it is throughout society. It's not just the leaders. All those leaders are as a reflection of the people that they're leading. So it's the whole nation. It's not just them. So people can sit back and judge, but then they're quietly and secretly doing the same things. I might mention we just got served another lawsuit yesterday. Uh, this time they're trying to get money that they say we owe them plus the whole TIC parcel, including your lots. They want to own them. That's what the lawsuit states. Now, I'm not worried about it uh, in the least because we've already read several scriptures which talk about the rebellion at Anatoth and how it will turn out, and we're going to win. Now, when we win, I don't know. How we win, I'm not positive, but I think I have a pretty good idea. But we need patience. We need, like Habakkuk, to sit on our watch and take care of our business. And he will deal with them in his time and in his way. We already know the outcome, uh, ultimately. Now tell that to Joseph in the fifth year of his sitting in prison for seven years, waiting for God to deliver him from something that he had not even done. And that must have been very, very hard. But what did Joseph do? Did he sit and feel sorry for himself for seven years? Nope. He got busy encouraging and strengthening and helping the other prisoners. The first thing you know, the warden put him in charge of <laughs> the, the social, I don't know what you'd call it, the, the well-being of the prisoners. He was a leader among them. So, uh, he responded, said, well, God put me here. Uh, I'm going to do what I can that's good, whatever it might be. So, he didn't sit and feel sorry for himself. Abraham and Sarah waited even longer than that after they were promised a child. And they didn't just sit back and do nothing. They got on with life. And when the time, God's time came, everything worked out. The just shall live by faith. We are not to live in fear of our neighbors. Everything virtually in this new lawsuit was just like the first one. It's full of lies and things that cannot be substantiated because they are lies. When people say and put it in a public record, I have a lease to buy, they're an outright bald-faced liar because they had no such thing and cannot produce it. And that is the kind of drivel that we're dealing with in this one. I won't go into all of it now. Let's get into the Word of God. But the point is, we need to just serve God, trust Him, live in faith, and He'll work this out. Now, we need to do what we can in the meantime. But I'm not afraid of them. Um, I, I, several of us have noticed that just the last few weeks they've been oh so friendly. You go by and they, from a distance, they just wave. They think they're in the catbird seat and they're going to win this thing. God is on their side. You know, God is not on the side of thieves and liars. It says it right here. And that's what this is all about. Fraud, deception, and lies. And that will not win in the long run. Now, I have just been ignoring them as if they do not even exist for the most part. 
uh, keep my eyes straight ahead. Uh, once in a while I've looked over, but I, I try to control myself. You know, how much do I talk to Satan? Very, very little. The only thing I ever say to Satan is the eternal rebuke you. That's all I say to him. Now, he's my enemy. Now, doesn't God say to love your enemies and do good to them? You better figure out which scripture is talking about what. Now, God says there in 1 Corinthians that if they will not obey God, you're not to have anything to do with them, not eat with them, or anything else. Now, is that contradicting what Christ said about loving your enemies and doing good? No, it depends on which enemy, what circumstance, and what applies where. That's where wisdom and conversion come in. Is it a contradiction in Proverbs when it says, Answer a fool according to his folly? Don't answer a fool according to his folly? Seems to be an absolute contradiction right there in two verses. But it's not. What he's saying there is you need to learn the wisdom to know which fool to talk to and which fool not to talk to. That's the message. Now, when people are lying and cheating and stealing, I'm not going to give them the time of day because they're, they're, they are of Satan, the devil, whose father, I mean, whose sons they are, he's the father. He says, the one that you obey is your father. And who's the liar and the accuser? Satan, the devil. So if they're lying and accusing and misrepresenting and stealing, then I need nothing to do with them. I don't have anything to do with Satan except rebuke you. And there's one or two of them I've asked, I've told them that. The eternal rebuke you, Satan. Kind of did a double take, but it's okay. I don't want anything to do with that way thing. Now, when the Pharisees came against Christ, they were his enemies. They were trying to kill him. They were trying to put him in jail. They were trying to stone him. They were trying to do all kinds of things to him. Now, he told them what they were, didn't he? <laughs> Pretty clearly. Snakes, sons of snakes, whitened sepulchers, unwashed cups, on and on. Generation of vipers. Rattlesnakes. That's what he called them. Now, did he talk to them at times as the master? Yes, he did. Uh, he even sat down to eat with them at times. But we need to be very, very careful. Because I've seen people here whom I thought were converted. Who have joined the rebel side. So we have to be careful. If you're around that kind of attitude... Sooner or later, you will take on that attitude. And I don't want to be around it. I want nothing to do with it. Christ maybe could handle it. I'm not sure I could. So I don't want to be around it. Anyway, in the end, the news is good. So we are to move forward in faith. We're not to worry. We're not to be anxious. They are not upsetting me. They are not scaring me. I can tell by the way they're waving and laughing and carrying on that they, they think they're scaring me, but they're not.
I'm not losing sleep over it. I got that lawsuit late yesterday afternoon, and I slept like a baby all night. I don't mean one with colic. I mean peacefully. So not to worry. Yeah, there may be a period of time where it goes up and down. Who knows? They could even win temporarily. Might have to appeal. God might intervene and run them off before then. I don't know exactly how this will work out, but I know how it works out in the end. And that's all that matters. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked on into the fire. God took care of them. They didn't bow down. They didn't scrape. They didn't react in fear. Oh, we'll worship you, O great king. We don't want to be thrown in the fire. I don't want to be thrown to the lions. So, yeah, I'll, I'll worship. I'll, I'll, I'll cross my fingers and pay lip service to you, O king. It's not the way they did it. No, we're not going to do that. We're not going wrong. We will obey God. God took care of him. He took care of Paul. He didn't die of stonings. He didn't die of shipwreck. He didn't die of snake bite. The Romans did finally kill him, but then that was God's purpose at that time for that to happen. And here he's speaking to the Roman church, saying, I can't get there yet. I keep getting prevented. So when he finally did get there, I'm not sure it was the first visit, but anyway, when he appealed to Rome and went there, that's where he died. They killed him. But that was God's plan. It was his plan for all the apostles save John to be martyred. So, hey, we do the best we can. We trust God in faith. Do we really need how much life on this earth? I am only concerned about from the time my life ends on this earth for the rest of eternity. That's all I'm concerned about. I don't know how long you've lived. 20 years, 70, 80 years, 90 years. It really doesn't matter how long we live on this earth. It's what happens after that matters. So, they could kill us tomorrow. Big deal. If we're in the first resurrection, we won't know it till it happens. One split second later, you're in the resurrection. Paul even said it. You know, as far as I'm concerned, I've lived a long time. I've been through a lot. I just as soon die and next second wake up in the resurrection and be with Christ. How long do I need to keep wandering about and getting shipwrecked and stoned? I'm tired of it. I'd, I'd rather die and be with Christ, except I know you need me to keep preaching and teaching and writing your letters. You know, I feel much the same way at this point. I'm nearly 75 years old. That's quite a while on this earth. And you know what? As I look forward from this day, <clears throat> I see more trials, troubles, and tribulations than we have known up to this day coming upon us. It will get far more intense than it has been. So if you could lay down and just go to sleep and wake up in the resurrection, that wouldn't be too bad a deal. Except I'm still human, and I'm not ready for that. I, you know, I mean, speaking logically, that makes sense. And it made sense to Paul, but he realized he needed to be here for a purpose. And we have a purpose. 
I have a purpose in the work that I do in the ministry, but you have a purpose in building the temple and in helping those who come to build the temple. We have a great purpose in life yet. So let's not just lay down and die. Let's move on. Uh, Joseph didn't lay down and die. He moved on. Be busy. Be doing God's work. Be so doing. Anyway, getting back to Romans after the two sermonettes. If you condemn others, you're condemning yourself because you do the same things, end of verse 1. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us is perfect, so he who lives in a glass house can't throw stones. Basically what he's saying there. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. So he talks about all these perversions and sins, fornication, adultery, lying, thieving, envy, murder, malignancies of one kind or another, and perversions. And he says, God's going to judge all that, so we don't need to be on our high horse looking down on everybody because of their sins. God will take care of it. It's not our judgment. Now, do we recognize that stuff going on? Certainly we do. It's very obvious. But we don't get in a condemnative, self-righteous attitude where we look down upon others because they are worse sinners than we are. Now, Verse 3, And think you this, O man, that judges them which do such things, and do the same, that you shall escape the judgment of God. You know, you can condemn them uh, for lying and stealing in government, or for the presidents having 16 mistresses, and you only have one. So, you know, they're a whole lot worse than you are. No, I don't think so. (laughs) You know? We won't escape the judgment of God. And judgment is now on the church. So, do you think you can escape it just because you feel that you're better than somebody else? Or despise you the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You know, it's easy for us to say, well, God has called me, and now I'm in a special group. I'm part of the first fruits. I'm hopefully part of the bride of Christ. And these other people are just awful sinners out there. Well, God opened your mind and brought you to repentance, didn't he? Didn't he do that? Yeah. Is he going to open the minds of all these other people that Paul is describing here, these perverts and liars and thieves and fornicators? Is he going to call them? Yes, he is. Is he going to lead them to repentance? Yes, he is. So who are we to stand on our soapbox and condemn them? We recognize sin around us, but let's be careful that we don't get involved in it. Because we will not escape the judgment of God. All these people he's going to call later will have their judgment later. Ours is now. We'll either make it or we won't. 
So be careful how we look at other people. God loved all those sinners, so much so that He gave His only begotten Son that all of them can eventually be called. He doesn't hate any of them. Despises their sins, but He's going to fix that, just like He's fixing yours. So let's not despise His riches and goodness and look down on others who will someday receive His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. But after your hardness and, and impenitent heart treasure up to yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You know, we need to be very careful that we're not laying up wrath against ourselves from God who is going to say, I don't know you. Why didn't you obey? I showed you the truth. I gave you every opportunity. Why didn't you obey? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Get out of here. Don't want it. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. That's his works. Now, do works, do deeds play some part in our reward? Yes, they do. All the Protestants will tell you that works mean nothing. Well, Paul says right here they do. He will render, God will render to every man according to his deeds. How he lives, what he does. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. So if we can patiently continue in good works and in good deeds, it means that we are actively seeking glory and honor and eternal life from God. Now what did Paul say in another place? I will show you my faith by my works. Faith is important. It's one of the big three. But how is faith demonstrated? Through our obedience to His ways. We show that we have trust in Him that if we will live according to this standard of law, we know that He will grant us eternal life. He can't help Himself. He wants to. Now, if we don't have trust and belief that we can have eternal life, then it really doesn't matter what we do, does it? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If in this life only we have hope in God or the resurrection. So he's, he's not saying here, deeds and works are done away. There are some places in Galatians and in Romans where people try to say that, but he lays way too much background here what, was, what are all those things he mentioned in verses 29 through 31 of chapter 1? All, they're all about breaking the commandments. The commandments of God. I was talking to somebody the other day. They kept telling me the law is done away. We're not under it. We don't have to obey it. What did Christ say in Matthew 19, 17? If you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, they were trying to say, well, you know, Paul said you don't, you're not under the law. And they said, said we don't have to keep the Sabbath or 
the holy days or any of that. They grew up in the church. And I says, well, do you think that we have to follow Christ? Oh yeah, we got to follow Jesus. All right, then don't we need to do the things that he did? Did he keep the Sabbath? Well, yeah. But we don't need to. No, no, no. It says that you're to walk as he walked, think as he thought, and do as he did. And he said, if you will earn the life, keep the commandments. Oh. Yeah, but. You get a lot of yeah, but. But what about this? Well, all I have to do is what Christ did. Was he at the Feast of Tabernacles, preaching on the last great day? Yep. Was he there at Pentecost in Acts 2, and showed his power? Yep. And on and on. Right here he says, if you continue in good works, good deeds, you're seeking glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. That's all I'm seeking. Isn't that what you're after? Money doesn't matter. Nothing on this earth matters. It's a material world. It's a physical world. The only thing that matters is eternal life in the kingdom of God. <coughs> and he, he says that continuing in good deeds and works shows that that's what you're seeking. And if you're not having good works and obeying the law, then you're not truly seeking eternal life. You're seeking to do what you want to do. But to them that are contentious and do not obey the truth... What's that word? Do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. What is unrighteousness? It's the opposite of righteousness. The law... Uh, defines what sin is. It's the breaking of the law. It's unrighteous. It's sin. So, you have to obey the law. Isn't Paul pretty clear about that here? This, this isn't one of those places he wrote things hard to be understood. He's, he's pretty plain right here with these Romans. So, he says, if you obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentiles. So, writing to a predominantly Gentile church, but he's making it very clear that it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. If you don't obey the truth and the law, there's no justification. Glory and honor and peace to those that work good. That's good works, right? Works good. For there is no respect of persons with God. Here again, he's writing to a racially mixed audience and is saying there is no respect of persons with God. None of you are any better than anybody else. You're not superior by race in any way. All that matters is conversion and obeying the truth. That's what matters. What kind of blood you got going through your veins doesn't matter in the least. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. So he says, people that didn't know the truth, didn't understand the law, they perished without it. 
They're dead. They're gone. Most people who've ever lived on this earth have never known the law of God. Okay? The vast majority of them. The vast majority of the nearly 7 billion on the earth today have no clue about the law of God. All those Chinese and Indians and Japanese and on and on and on it goes. They don't know the law of God. Even the so-called Christian nations don't know the law of God. Because they say it's done away. It doesn't count. It doesn't mean anything. So we can do whatever we wish. Especially break the Sabbath. They selectively decide when the law might be important to them. That's what they decide. Now, if they want to go out and lie or steal or commit adultery, they find a way to justify that because that's what I need to do and that's what I want to do and it must be okay. They'll put the law aside. But I really love that time that minister uh, was sitting visiting with a couple. The wife was in the church and he wasn't. And the guy was insisting the law was done away with. So the minister says, well, he says, uh, I'll be by at seven tonight and take your wife out. We're going dancing. And suddenly the law became important to that guy. <laughs> you know? I thought that was a real good example of a way to just jab him good. <coughs> oh, suddenly it mattered. And those who knew the law and sinned are going to be judged by the law. Now, if you're going to be judged by the law, and you say it's done away with, you're in extreme jeopardy, because you're not keeping it, and yet you're going to be judged by it. There are a lot of people who have left the church of God and gone back into Protestantism who are in extreme danger, because they knew the law, and they understood that it was to be kept, and now they're denying it, and they're going to be judged by it. You are judged by what you know. <laughs> then he goes on to explain. For when the Gentiles which have not the law, all of these races of people around the world, don't have it, don't have the Bible, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law to themselves. So he says, even Gentile people sometimes realize that there's certain things in society that you cannot do if you expect your society to, to survive. If you lie, cheat, steal, adultery, fornication, all those things, it's going to tear your society apart. It's going to do it. So even they, without knowledge of God, without knowledge of the Bible have rules in their own society because they recognize if we do this, this, and this, we're in trouble. So, what excuse do we have who know God and who know the truth and still sin? When even they who do not know God know better than to do some things. It's the whole point. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. 
So, they understand that there are certain standards a society ought to have, and then some of them break it, some won't live by it. So then they either accuse each other, because they know that won't work, or they go along, excusing each other. Oh, it's okay, you know. So they, they set their own standards, and how they deal with it. In some societies, you do certain things, you die. That's the way it is, apart from God. You, you don't get away with it. Verse 16, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Emmanuel the Christ, according to my gospel. A day of judgment's coming, and the so-called secrets that we might have aren't secret to God. He sees it all. He knows it all. He even knows what we think. He ponders our thoughts and our hearts. He knows if we're thinking of sin. Behold, you are called a Jew, and rest in the law, and make your boast of God. So there were obviously some Jews there, and he says, All right, you Jews in the audience, in the church at Rome, you have the law, and now you're sitting among these Gentiles that didn't have it, who now do, and here you are boasting that, well, we have had the law all the way back to Abraham and Moses, and we're better than you are, obviously. Now, wait a minute. You make your boast of God saying, Oh, I'm a Jew, physically, racially. And know His will and approve the things that are more excellent being instructed out of the law. Okay, some of you Jews grew up being taught the law all your life. And now you think that you're superior to these Gentiles here. And are confident that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness. You just think you're quite a bit better than the people sitting in the chairs next to you. Do we think we're better than the world around us? How many times do you have to sin to reap the death penalty? Once. Just once. That's all. Doesn't matter whether it's a million times or once. The penalty of sin is death. So whether you've sinned once or a million times, you have to have the mercy and forgiveness of God through Christ's sacrifice, or you're going to die for your own sin. So, who are we to pick between ourselves who knew the law and, and we've kind of been keeping it, and you Gentiles who didn't know it and you've been sinners all your lives? There's just no room for self-righteousness. I do better works than you do. Nah. He's, he's knocking a hole in that with the Jews in front of the Gentiles. And there's some Jews in that audience that probably had their toes kind of go squinching up in their shoes about now. Because he's calling them out. So you think you know his will, and you've been instructed from the law, and are confident that you're a judge of, of the blind and a light. You're wonderful. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Now, he's going to get after them here in a little bit. He's just he's laying a little groundwork here, is all he's doing. 
You therefore, which teach another, teach you not yourself? You that preach a man should not steal, do you steal? You that say a man should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You that abhor idols, do you commit sacrilege? Worship yourself or money or whatever. You that make your boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonor you God? Don't you realize when you break it, you're dishonoring God? What did Christ get on the Pharisees about? They were stealing their own mother's houses. we got people right here trying to steal your house right now. Just filed a lawsuit trying to take your land and the house that's on it. We better be sure we're not doing the same thing. <laughs> you know? Let's not lie. Let's not steal. Let's trust God to take care of those who do. But we can't sit in abject judgment and condemnation because none of us are perfect either, are we? Let God judge them. Let Him take care of it. He said He would. He will. He will. So I don't need to hate them. I don't need to despise them. I just need to realize that they will be judged by God just like I will. And he has said very clearly, I think, in Scripture, that they will go, every one of them, man, woman, and child, will go into the tribulation and die there. None will live. You know what my hope and prayer is? That as before they die, they repent. That's what I hope. I don't want to see anybody, any of these people around me go into the lake of fire. I want to see them saved from it. Just like I want to see us saved from it. So we don't need to sit in judgment. We need to be very careful of that, in fact. Now, that doesn't mean I necessarily have to try to be friends with them because they're not headed God's way, obviously. And they're trying to do things to us that are ungodly. So we don't have to be bosom buddies, but that doesn't mean that in my mind I need to be condemnative or judgmental in that sense. God will judge them, and God will judge me. Now, they've already judged me and condemned me and said that I ought to be removed from here. That's their problem, not mine. I do not need to do the same with them. I just need to trust God that He'll do what He says and hope they repent, just like I hope that I repent of all my sins. So, he says, do you make your boast and then you dishonor God by disobeying Him? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. Now, if we, having been called of God and become spiritual Jews, dishonor Him through disobedience, then aren't we being darkness to the Gentiles? Yeah. That's what he's saying. You Jews need to think carefully, he said, uh, lest you dishonor God and blaspheme. For circumcision truly profits if you keep the law. But if you be a breaker of the law, your circumcision is made uncircumcision. Circumcision was the dividing line physically between an Israelite and a Gentile. So he uses that physical example to show that we're talking about spiritual here. Physical circumcision is nothing. 
just like physical race, is nothing. It matters not one whit what race you are from or what racial mixture you are. What kind of blood courses through our veins is totally unimportant to God. The only thing that is important to Him is whether the Spirit of God flows through our mind and bodies. That's all that matters. Race means nothing. That's what He's saying here. Okay, let's haul them all out here and see if we're circumcised. He says that doesn't mean anything. Because there were, there were Gentiles sitting in the congregation who had not been circumcised. And Jews who had. So, he's getting down to racism here again. <laughs> you know? He says, it doesn't really matter about your foreskin. If you break the law, then that advantage you thought you had goes away. It's just a physical thing. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? He hasn't been circumcised physically. But spiritual circumcision is all that matters. The physical means nothing. Do we need to be physically circumcised as babies? No. Doesn't matter. Are you circumcised of the heart? That's all that matters. And yet even in the church over the years, there were those who thought, if you weren't circumcised, you're breaking the law. It doesn't make any difference whatsoever. It is totally unimportant. I'll show you another scripture to prove that here in just a minute. It doesn't give you any advantage spiritually whether you are or are not physically circumcised. Because a Gentile that isn't physically circumcised <coughs> is going to be judged by his righteousness, not by his foreskin. And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, is it's, it's, it's natural not to be circumcised. That's the natural state. It's natural to grow hair under your arms. It's unnatural to be circumcised. Now, when God wanted to make a physical difference and told Abraham to circumcise his son, I'm sure he got a bad reaction from A, his son, and he certainly did from his wife, who didn't want him touching that baby boy. Older than that at that point. Now, it made a physical difference for a period of time. Now, circumcision is of the heart, not of the flesh. It makes not one whit of difference. It is natural not to be circumcised. It was unnatural to get whacked. That's what was unnatural. That had not been done until that point. If it... Let's see, I'll reread that. And, and shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature. That's the way we're born, and that's the way we stay, unless somebody intervenes with a knife. If it fulfill the law, judge you, <coughs> who by the letter and circumcision do transgress the law. You Jews are living by the letter of the law, and you've been circumcised. Does that count for righteousness? No. Doesn't make one whit of difference. 
Then he says it in so many words. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. It makes not one whit of difference. And yet we still have church people who think that it's a badge of honor or makes them more important if they've been circumcised. And they look down on somebody who has not been. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So you Jews brag to each other about how you all got circumcised on the eighth day, and he says it doesn't make a bit of difference to God. It doesn't matter at all. Turn to Galatians 6 for a moment. Verse 15. For in Christ Emmanuel, neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature, a new creation, a new spiritual creation. Right there, in so many words, he says, circumcision means nothing, here nor there, of the flesh. A new creation circumcision of the heart. So just because you got clipped don't make you no better than nobody else on earth. It's just the way it is. So he's telling the Jews, don't boast. That, that doesn't make you special. All right then, let's address another question, he says. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what, perf- what profit is there of that physical circumcision that the Jews went through? If circumcision means nothing, and keeping the law is all that means anything, then what what advantage do you Jews sitting out here have? What advantage do you have, really? The blood means nothing. The foreskin means nothing. What advantage do you have? That's the question on the table, then. He says, much every way. Oh, Well, if this doesn't matter and that doesn't matter, then what do you mean much in every way? Chiefly. All right, here's the the main advantage you have if you're a Jew back then. Because that to them were committed the utterances of God. God uttered His word to Moses. He uttered it to the prophets. They wrote it down. He put the Jews in charge of maintaining the Old Testament. Now, was that an advantage? That was a huge advantage. They had the Word of God. All the societies around them, the Philistines, the Moabites, whoever. Well, the Moabites and Ammonites might have had because they were kin to Abraham. But most of the Gentile races around them did not have the Word of God. Now you, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, is an advantage to have the Bible or not? Well, that's a huge advantage, isn't it? That's the chief advantage we have is we have the Word of God. We not only got the Old Testament, now we got the New Testament. We have a huge advantage over everybody else on this earth. Now what are we going to do with our advantage? That's the question. 
And that's a question he throws on the Jews. Now, people try to make this into a calendar issue in Romans 3. It's not a calendar issue. The calendar is not in the Bible. If they had the Old Testament, they didn't have the calendar. You know where the calendar is? It's in the heavens. It's the sun, the moon, the earth, and their orbits within each other. That's what Genesis 1.14 says. That's why they can't find a calendar in the Bible. I heard John Reitenbaugh say there's no calendar in the Bible. John, you're absolutely right. Now, the Bible points out where the calendar is. says it's in the heavens. Genesis 1.14. So then you look to the calendar in the heavens, and you keep time by where God put the calendar. It's all that simple. He's not talking about calendar here. The oracles, if you look it up in the Greek, simply means the utterances, the sayings of God. And that's what they had. And that was a great advantage. Now he asks another question. For what if some did not believe the utterances of God? You know what God told Israel? He said, Israel, I'm appointing... Moses as your deliverer. I am appointing Moses as your leader. You are to follow Moses out of Mitzrayim and ultimately cross the Red Sea and you will follow Moses. Now that's what God uttered to the Israelites. And through Moses, He gave them the law on Sinai with all kinds of lightning and thunder and great drama. And while the leader was gone, they rose up to play. That's how much Israel got what God had said. Now, Korah and Nathan and Byram were a good example of people who didn't believe the utterances of God. And they rebelled against Moses and died. And Ephraim, Ephraim and... Uh, Ephraim. Miriam and Aaron. Well, hey, we're just as good as you is. Our word means as much as yours. We pray too. I've heard that said by a lot of people. Did God agree with that? Now, when they, when they got rid of the utterances of God, they got in trouble. In all cases, do you ever find one instance in the Bible where God said, I don't care who you put in charge, I disagree, that it turned out good. Can you think of any place where God backed a rebel? Not once. He always backed those he had put in charge. Always. That hasn't changed. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, what if some didn't believe? They got in trouble. The Pharisees didn't believe the law of God. They got in trouble with Christ, didn't they? Big trouble, because they weren't keeping the law. They gave it lip service. They said they were, but they were breaking it, as he's already said here. If they didn't believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Now, if some disbelieve and won't obey God and don't have faith in God, is it going? let's say you have faith in God. 
because somebody else doesn't, does that make your faith without effect? No. Your faith counts as righteousness before God. So he's telling these Gentiles at Rome, if these Jews don't follow the utterances of God, and they are condemned for it, then that doesn't make your faith of none effect. It's still there. He who trusts in God will be saved from himself. He who does not, doesn't matter if he's a Jew. Yeah, the Jews had a big advantage over you. They had the law from the time they were a child. And they didn't follow it any better than you did. So they lost their advantage. In fact, not only did they lose the advantage they had of having the law, they are condemned because they didn't keep what they had. They were in much greater jeopardy than these Gentiles because they didn't keep what they had. You'll explain that here in a minute. doesn't make you Gentiles faith without effect just because the Jews didn't believe the things that they had, the Word of God. God forbid. Yes, let God be true, but every man a liar. says God's Word is true, been purified seven times. He gave it to the Jews, and they're telling you they're righteous, but they're not. They're liars. Except maybe you converted ones there in the audience in Rome. Are you getting the picture? <laughs> We're the converted spiritual Jews, aren't we? Are we getting the picture? <coughs> we have the Word of God. We better keep it. Otherwise, we're like those physical Jews who kept the letter of the law but didn't really do it. And they were in trouble. Christ made it very clear they were in trouble. So, every man's a liar, as it is written that you might be justified in your sayings and might overcome when you are judged. Now, what do you say? Do you say that I'm circumcised on the eighth day, I had the law all my life, and therefore I'm just before God? No, that won't work for you, because you disobeyed. You're not justified in your self-righteous assessment of yourself. So back off that and realize you better overcome because you're going to be judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? I speak as a man. Now, men take vengeance. So he says, God is not like us. He does not take vengeance. He has to be a righteous judge. So he doesn't get a grudge against somebody because they broke this, this, or this law. Well, he could pick the first one and say, you put other things ahead of me, and therefore I'm mad at you, and I'm not going to forgive you. Go to hell, <laughs> to put it bluntly. No, he's not like men. He doesn't take vengeance. If we repent, he forgives. He loves us. He wants us to repent. He wants to forgive us. That's his attitude. So are you going to say God's like men? God forbid. How could he judge the earth? For if the truth of God has more abounded through my lie unto his glory, 
Why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Now, this is getting to some of the things that Peter said. I don't quite get what Paul's saying. Uh, Some things he wrote that are hard to be understood. It's a little hard to get the sense of what he's saying here. But it's like Paul put it in another place. Shall we sin abundantly that grace may abound? The more we sin, the more God can forgive, and therefore the more glorious He is, is because He forgave more sin. So let's sin some more so that God can be even more righteous and even more merciful and forgiving than He actually is, because He not only forgave this much sin, He forgave that much. So we can make God even greater if we sin. That's the attitude some had. That was part of their religion of the day. And that's part of the religion of the day of Protestants. There is no law. We don't have to keep it. And all we need is grace. All we need is grace. So we can do anything we want. And that makes God even greater because He can forgive us of all this stuff. Unless it's your wife he's take, somebody's taking out. You know, then it, then, then it changes. Then they're not Protestants anymore. Then they, then they want the law kept. In that one instance. But no, no other time. Okay. And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say. So he says, now there's some people lying about us apostles. Really? They were slandered. They were lied about. They were accused. Let us do evil that good may come whose damnation is just. Paul wasn't preaching that they do evil. He was preaching the law be kept. But they were saying that he was saying, well, we can sin and it's okay because that makes God even greater to be able to forgive us. That's the whole point he's making here. Didn't the Jews basically do that? They talked about how they were circumcised. They talked about how they had the law. And then they broke it right and left out of greed, selfishness, and self-centeredness. And thought God was going to forgive them anyway and how great He is. You know, if you're going to say you're a Christian, you better be one. He's he's kind of getting on the Jews' case here pretty good. Then he says, what then? Here's another question. Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So he says... You Gentiles here don't need to be circumcised. Circumcision of the heart is all that matters. The Jews didn't have the advantage of circumcision. That wasn't an advantage to them. Their advantage was the utterances, the words of God. And they have denied them, and therefore you're all the same. There's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God as he says a little later on. Then he goes on to say, there is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. You're all alike. He says, 
Even though the Jews had the word of God, they don't understand the ways of God. That's happened here within the last 20, 30, 40 years in the church of God, where people began to realize that there were problems in worldwide, so they started doing Havanagila and Jewish dances and all kinds of Jew stuff, singing Jewish songs and to some degree or another keeping some of their days that aren't even in the Bible and saying the Jews are great. Those Jews over there in the Middle East, the Jews in New York and in Florida, they don't know anything about God. They're no different than the Baptists and the Methodists. In fact, some of them are becoming Baptists and Methodists, Messianic Jews, Protestant Jews. They don't know anything about God. Why do people in the church equate being a physical Jew or following the traditions of the Jews is important. Part of it came from Herbert Armstrong, who wanted to prove that he was a Jew through David's lineage. He was a little bit deceived. So, he was always trying to get the favor of the Jews in Middle East Jerusalem. Because he thought it was important. Had he never read this, he thought he was a physical Jew. Well, now Paul says that doesn't make a bit of difference, Mr. Armstrong. Doesn't make a bit of difference. The Spirit of God is all that matters. I don't care what race I am, I really don't care. I know a mixture of various ones. So what? It means nothing. And I don't even mind telling people some of the mixture that I know I have in me. I, I don't mind because it doesn't matter. I don't care what they think. All that matters is, do I have the Spirit of God in my heart and mind? None righteous, no, not one. None that seeks after God. Verse 12, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. And he's talking about the self-righteous Jews for the most part here, and including the Gentiles who had not thought they were righteous. But the ones who thought they were, the ones who are under the gun here, because who is he talking about in the context? The Jews. That's how he opened this section. What advantage does the Jew have? He thinks he has an advantage, and he says, I'll give them this. They had the word of God, but they didn't keep it. And there's none of them that are righteous. No, not one. And he's talking about the Jews then when he says the same things about them Christ said about them. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and mercy, or misery, are in their ways. He'd been one of them. He'd been killing Christians himself. He knew what they were. 
And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So he's speaking of the nation of the Jews here. They didn't say that they had an advantage that they had the calendar. No, they had the advantage that they had the word of God. And they didn't keep it. So he says, none of them are righteous. They're not holy. They're sinners. Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Now what is Paul saying there? Because that is a, that is a Protestant saying is we're not under the law. We're not obligated to keep the law. Now, Paul here says the whole world is under the law. The whole world. So you Methodists think you're not? No, he didn't give any, did he make any exceptions here? The whole world is under it. They will ultimately be judged by it. And the penalty that they are under is death. It really means under the penalty of the law, but they like to throw that out because they want to just say we're not under the law. That is, we don't have to keep it. It doesn't say under the penalty here, does it, in so many words. It says the whole world is under the law. That is the standard by which everybody will ultimately be judged in whatever resurrection they are in. that every mouth may be stopped. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. Everybody will be judged by the law. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. If you know the law, it is sin to break it, so you know what sin is, because the law defines what sin is. Sin is the transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. So, he says, uh, By the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Now, does that give the Protestants ammunition? No. The point he's going to make here, verse 23, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So no matter how many good deeds you do, if you've sinned once, you die. It's that simple. Unless you're forgiven. So all the good deeds and all the works of the law that you might keep don't mean anything if you've sinned once. So you can't be justified by the law. Because there's no human being who has ever lived who has kept it perfectly and not sinned, except in Christ. No one. Therefore, no matter how good I've been the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, what I did 50, 60 years ago still condemns me. If I've been good for the last week, what I did two weeks ago still condemns me. I can't be justified by doing good works. Because the law, the penalty of the law, will kill me anyway. So, what do I do? 
I go to God and ask for grace, which is unmerited pardon, pardon I do not deserve, that comes through a sacrifice I did not deserve, the killing of God. I killed him by my sin. He was sacrificed for my sin and yours and everybody's. But take it personal. I killed Christ. It wasn't the Jews back there. I kill him every time I sin. His blood is on my head. Unless I, through repentance, am forgiven. So no, you can't be justified by your works, your good deeds. Now your reward will be based on that. But the giving of eternal life is based on that forgiveness and mercy and grace which you receive because eternal life is a gift from God. You cannot earn a gift. It says it clearly. It is a gift of God. Something He gives you because He wants to, because you repented and He forgave you, and therefore you stand sinless before Him, having been forgiven in the blood of Christ. And that's where I want to stand at the time of the resurrection, is on the blood of Christ. I do not want to go before the judgment seat of Christ and say, well, I did this and this and this and this. Well, what about that? Oh, do we need to talk about that? I don't want to be there. don't want to go there. I have no justification for the things I've done wrong in my life. None whatsoever. So no matter how many good things I do, it can't make up for the death penalty. There's people on death row. They've got religion all of a sudden. And oh, how good a Protestants they are. Does that commute their sentence or are they still going to die? No matter how good they are in cell block, still going to die. So your good works don't mean anything. You're going to die unless forgiven by the blood of Christ. Your reward will be based upon your works, how much your reward is. One city, ten cities, whatever. It's time for me to quit, isn't it? By the law is the knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. God gives His righteous judgment through the law and the prophets. And it's good news that Christ did die for us, and that since all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, we have a continuing sacrifice in the blood of the Lamb so that we might be justified not by good works, but by Christ's sacrifice. But we were created unto good works. And Paul said, I'll show you my faith by my works. So it's not saying that works aren't important. They are. Keeping the law is. But where we've slipped up and broken it, we've got to have help. That's what his sacrifice is all about. 
So let's stop there then. It's a good note to stop on.